gathering around the table, church. It's good, good, uh, good to be together in person, online. I'm excited to see what we have back there. I haven't been back there, so it's one of the rare moments where I don't know what's happening in our building. Um, some call it leadership. I call it micromanaging. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, is, uh, it is humbling to, to have the privilege of pastoring this church, and, and uh, we, love, we love this church. We love this city. Um, we're excited what God's doing, and, uh, and it's a journey, but we're here, and we love it. And we're not going anywhere. So I just want to also reiterate that as, uh, you know, as you go through these ups and downs and uncertainties and, and the notes are here. And, uh, and if you don't like us, well, we're not going anywhere. So uh, <laughs> awkward. All right. I just made Pastor Appreciation Month really awkward. All right. But it's great to be here in, uh, in person, online, whatever it is. And uh, we are continuing our series called Around the Table and looking at these transformational moments that happen with Jesus in the early church around a table. Uh, this idea of looking at our own relationships and our own lives, and I think this last two years has exposed our need for relationship, hasn't it? That some of us felt more connected than we really were. Uh, some of us realized the relationships we had and engaged in those more. And, and I think as we as a church gather around this idea and these, these topics of being around the table, it's, it, it really is about developing uh, and growing together. That's a part of our discipleship process, growing together in Jesus. And, and some, some key ingredients that we're discovering in this series this fall, what? Food, faith, and friends. We need those three things in our life, right? We need food, right? Food gets us around a table. And, uh, we need faith. We need to, to, to gather around our beliefs, gather around Jesus, and we need friendship in the midst of that. We're not meant to do this alone. And so we're trying to do this through dinner groups, through these table talk cards uh, that are on your seats. These questions are online as well uh, in the YouTube descriptions. If you ever miss a message and can't get the card or uh, whatever, those questions are there because we want you to talk about these things. We want you to engage in conversation with people. Uh, we want you to enjoy some treats and some food and, and get around life uh, together and be growing together as people. And as we've seen in this series, Jesus spent a lot of time around a table, didn't he? Look at the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is going to a table, leaving a table. He is a table man. Like, he just loves to be around the table, and he spent a lot of time there. And, and around the table, various things happened. The miraculous happened. Miraculous things happened around the table with Jesus. People were restored People that were broken are restored around the table with Jesus. Uh, the family of God is expanded around the table with Jesus, right? It's an inclusive table. Uh, and, and Jesus used the table to talk and to teach. It wasn't just, let's just talk about the weather and the Seahawks. It was an opportunity to teach people about things that were important and profound and life-changing. And it was a teachable time. Teachable moments happened around the table. And as we see in this story, Jesus uses the table here with the Pharisees. He's at dinner with the religious leaders of the time, and he has this teachable moment with them because he's watching them as they show up, and they're all fighting for seats. They're jockeying for position around the table, finding the most honorable, prestigious spot, right? And he gives them this parable. Cabin just read it. This idea, he, he says in chapter 14, he noticed the guests picked the places of honor at the table. They're all playing this game of musical chairs. They're all sitting around fighting for seats. You remember the game of musical chairs as a kid, right? 
Yes, you do. You want to play that now when you go home this afternoon. Uh, go play musical chairs. Put up a couple of chairs, play some music, go fight for the chairs, right? You go and you sit and, and you start battling and then an elbow gets thrown and then there's tears and it's a good time. Your musical chairs weren't that competitive, apparently. I grew up in SeaTac. We, we, we made it happen. So he gives them this parable. And he talks about what's happening, happening. Because a game like musical chairs is a fun game as a kid, but there's some huge, uh, huge lessons being learned. It's a terrible lesson, actually, that we teach people about musical chairs. What is it? Fight for yourself. Fight for yourself. Right? Compete against other people. Look out for number one. And that's what's happening with these grown-ups, these religious leaders, these people that are supposed to be so in tune with God and his heart. And they're playing musical chairs around the table. And he gives them this parable because they're fighting for the best seats available. And the ancient tables weren't shaped like King Arthur's table, a big round table. They weren't shaped like your table or my table, big rectangular tables with an expansion leaf in the middle because you bought it at Costco and they could seat like 27 people, right? It's not like that. They were shaped like a U or a horseshoe. And the most honorable person would sit kind of in the pinnacle spot of that. And then out from there, the honorable prestigious spots went out, right? And so you kind of picture the most important person sat in the middle, and then the least kind of went out from there, and the farthest away from the center, they were just there. And what would happen in these ancient table settings is that people would show up to the party, and they'd pick their seats, and they'd get their spot, and then the host could get up at any time because people showed up late, the most honorable people apparently, right? They showed up late, so those of us that are tardy, I guess we're honorable, for those of us that don't like being on time, anybody? Can I get an amen for those of us that are always five minutes late? You're an honorable, prestigious person, apparently, according to ancient times. We would show up late, and then the host would have no problem booting people out of the seat. Uh, excuse me, that seat's reserved for a more honorable person. Move down. Can you imagine how humiliating that is? Oh, I thought I was pretty important, but this guy showed up, so... I'll sit over here. No, keep going, keep going, keep going. And they would keep nudging them down, and, and the host said no. And it wasn't being rude. It was just the culture of that time. They would have no problem moving them around. And, and, and you think about our, our days today, our tables today. Think about our tables today. We use them as social ladders. Maybe not at your dinner table, but think about other tables where we see social rankings take place. Think about weddings, right? You go to a wedding, there's usually the head table. Right? And if you're just Uncle Joe that showed up, right, you don't sit at the head table because the bride and groom sit at the head table. And then they got the bridal party and then the parents and siblings and things like that. And then there's the rest of us sitting way apart from the bride and groom with binoculars. Hello, we are so happy to be here. We have almost this separate reception, right? You ever been at a wedding like that where you're not necessarily affiliated as family or really close friends or in the bridal party? You're just kind of there. You ever been to a wedding like that? You're like, well, at least it's a meal, right? Kind of feels like this social ranking. Or in a boardroom. I've never been in a boardroom. I've never had a job like this. But you see this. I'm a movie guy, so you see it depicted in movies. The most important person would either sit in the very center of the table or at the end of the table. And going out from that person, from the CEO-type figure, is what? Right? The head boss person sits in the middle of the table or at the end, and then you have the executives and the you know, vice executives and the senior vice executives and all that, all the way down to the lowly intern being paid in coffee. Right? And they're sitting way at the end of the table, farthest away from the most important person. 
Another example where tables are a social ranking. How about the kids' table? Is the kids' table a place of ranking? Do you remember growing up and it was Thanksgiving and you're like, I'm just a little too big to sit at the kids' table any longer? Right? You remember growing up and like you go over go to Thanksgiving dinner at somebody's house and you were just like, I don't feel like a little child anymore, but I don't get to sit with the grown-ups up there. I'm sitting at the kid like your knees didn't fit. It was physically uncomfortable for you to sit at the kids' table. And then you looked around the kids' table and they're eating jello and a pile of olives at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Maybe a roll. They've got more food on the table than going in, right? That's what the kids' table's like. And then you're like, what do we talk about? <laughs> I am a mature 9-year-old or 10-year-old or 15-year-old, right? I don't belong at the kids' table any longer. And it's uncomfortable. It's humiliating. You don't fit into that anymore, right? Should I just preach the whole message from here? <laughs> yeah. Because the idea here is Jesus looks at it and sees the Pharisees and they're looking at all of these seats of honor and saying, I don't belong at this table anymore. And we gather around the table with other people and our, our pride elevates us. We don't want to be humbled in sitting around with people that are lower than us, that are beneath us, that aren't as good as us. We don't want to sit around with people that aren't as educated as us or as spiritual as us or as deep as us, as real as us. And so it's humiliating sometimes to gather around that table. And, and Jesus is looking at the Pharisees. He's watching them jockey for position. And he begins to acknowledge this attitude of the heart because they're fighting for seats at the table and it's a symptom of the sickness that's invading their heart. These deeply religious people, these people that should be in tune with the heart of God, have a heart disease that they can't see. The symptom is that they're fighting for seats to get away from the kids' table and be at the grown-up table and sit next to the most honorable, prestigious spots. But their hearts are infected with a pride and an elitism, a superiority or an arrogance that needs to be dealt with. And I think what makes this subject matter so tough is that in our culture, pride is encouraged. A bit of confidence, a bit of arrogance is a okay in the workplace. It's acceptable. We're calling it leadership. We're calling it being bold. We're standing up for ourselves. It is something that can be embraced or encouraged. It's something that pride can often be ignored. Well, at least they're doing other good things. Sure, they're a bit of a jerk, but at least there's this that's good about them. We put up with prideful people because of the Results that they're putting forth. So pride is something that we can sometimes ignore or excuse or praise. And even within ourselves, we overlook it. Other behaviors we would look at and say, yeah, I need to deal with that. That's broken. That's fractured. That's something that God doesn't want for me. But pride sometimes slides under the radar. And yet Jesus talks a lot about pride. And he's seeing the Pharisees gather around this table. And that symptom of them fighting for seats is exposing what's going on in the heart, and he wants to deal with the heart. See, the, the table can be this almost teachable place, this catalytic moment for us. As we gather around the table, we begin to see the symptoms come out, right? It's like when you, you have a dash light uh, alert for a check engine light, right? You get a, a check engine light, it kind of looks like this. Throw it up on the screen there. There you go, you get that light. Now, this doesn't tell you what's going on. It's just a light indicating like, flash, 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 you need to deal with this. 
And I just recently discovered that when that happens, you don't have to go to the mechanic and spend $200 for them to tell you what it is. Did you know that? I saved $200. Well, no, I wasted $200. And then the next time I learned that I could save $200, you go to AutoZone, and they have this cool little device that you plug into your engine. Do -do 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 -do. Codes come out, and take it back in, and they tell you, oh, yeah, this is what's going on. It's a $30 repair. This is all you need to do. Like, I'm taking it to the experts at the repair shop for them to just plug in a device because the flashing light is just a symptom. It's not telling me exactly what's going on. Well, Jesus is watching what's happening around the table, and it's beginning to flash some lights on the dash. They're fighting for seats, and Jesus begins to diagnose what's going on below the surface. The table is like that device that plugs into the engine of your car. The table exposes What's going on below the surface? Because it's at the table that I can feel discomfort. Maybe I'm not fighting for seats, but maybe what it is is I'm sitting around the table and I'm around people that make me a little uncomfortable, like we've talked about the last few weeks. People that are different than me for how they look or where they come from or the language that they speak or the language that they use. Different for what they do and how they take care of themselves and the clothes that they wear. And we can get around the table with certain folks and we feel a little bit of uncomfort. That discomfort is pointing something out to us. Jesus wants to use that table discomfort, that table tension, to say, hey, maybe there's some heart stuff we want to deal with. Maybe there's something good that can come from this uncomfortable situation. Maybe we're sitting around the table and it's not about fighting for seats, but all of our, our, our conversations tend to turn into debates. You ever have that? If you haven't, it's almost Thanksgiving. <laughs> and it feels like every time I try to talk to so-and-so, just we clash. Well, maybe God would use that table tension to say, let's, let's expose some heart stuff going on in you. Not them, but in you. Maybe you're looking around your table and you feel lonely. I don't have a lot of people around my table. And instead of blaming the world, maybe there's some heart stuff that God would want to expose. Maybe we're looking around the table and the conversations are always shallow and surface level and it is the weather in the Seahawks. Maybe God could use that moment of table tension not to blame the world, but for you to evaluate for yourself and with Jesus to say, well, what's going on below the surface? Maybe there's some heart issues that need to be dealt with. What about this one? Do you gather around the table and only talk about yourself? I'm sure you don't, but you know people who do, right? It's always easier to pinpoint it in somebody else than ourselves. But we get around the table with people and they only talk about themselves, so guess what? We probably do that too. And we wonder why people don't want to have a meal with us. You see, we're not always fighting for seats of honor in the head of the table. I've never fought to sit at the head of the table. But I've felt this discomfort. I've felt tension around the table at times. And I think Jesus uses that discomfort, that tension around the table with people to expose some heart things that need to be dealt with. Think about the, what that is for you. Today, the focus that that discomfort reveals is pride. What does pride look like around the table for us? What, is, what does it look like to be prideful around the table with people? Because that, that, I had to think about that a lot this week. Like what, if Jesus is, is wanting us to humble ourselves, well, the opposite of that is that I come to a table with pride. I, I'm, I don't belong at this table. 
I'm better than this table. And I think what can happen a lot of times around the table for Christians is we gather around the table with people and we turn them not into people, but into projects. We turn people into projects. I'm going to fix you up. We get around the table and our intentions are good. I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to give them a solution. I'm going to give them some insight, some wisdom. I'm going to give them some perspective. I'm going to help them along the way. But in the end, we end up hurting people because we're turning them into a project that makes us feel better about ourselves rather than seeing them as people. And as we bring pride to the table, here's some things that I I noticed about myself, I noticed about the Pharisees, and it's probably true for all of us, okay? It's not just Sean and the Pharisees. But when we bring pride to the table, here's some thoughts. I think we bring comparison to the table. We bring competition to the table. We bring condescension to the table, and we bring a conforming nature to the table. We're comparing, competing, condescending, and conforming. What do I mean by those things? Because they alliterate, so it must be from God. We gather around the table with an arrogance and a pride and an elitism, and what do I begin to do? I start to compare myself with people around them. I measure up against them and begin to evaluate their weaknesses or their flaws, their deficiencies. And I begin to compare myself to them. And then what happens is we begin to then compete. Internally, I might find myself competing with them, keeping score. You ever find yourself keeping score with people? One-upping each other? Oh, you got a story? Let me tell you a story, right? Oh, they're sounding so smart. Well, let me drop a $10 word I read on my thesaurus, right? And we begin competing. But not only that, we begin to compete with how intellectual we are, how smart we sound, how accomplished we are, how adventurous we are, how spiritual we are, how, you know, how healthy we are. All of these things, we begin to compete with them and pridefully thinking, I'm better than you. And I know it. And then around that table of pride, I, I begin to condescend. I begin to talk down to people. I'm more enlightened, I'm more accomplished, I'm more experienced, and I only pray that you will someday get to my level. You will see the world the way I see it. Oh, I pray for you that you will measure up to me someday. Now, we wouldn't say those things. Maybe you do. That's, you're probably having a lonely table if you talk like that to people, my guess. But inside, we look down at people. We don't look equal to people. And then we begin conforming them. This is where we really turn them into projects. But I don't think we start conforming unless we think that they need our help. Right? We, we somehow think in our prideful, arrogant selves, yeah, I can fix their problems. I can do this. So uh, I, I'm, I'm looking down on you. I'm comparing. I'm competing. I'm condescending. And now I'm going to conform you. Have you ever thought about doing this? Here, here's what I think you need to do. Here's the solution that's going to solve your problem. And we begin to put our ideas, put our beliefs, put our thoughts, put our solutions on people so that they would be conformed to my identity, my ideals, my perspective, my way of doing it. See the way, see the world the way I see it. Engage your family the way I engage my family. Pray the way I pray. Vote the way I vote. Vaccinate the way I vaccinate. I don't know. You just begin to conform people, right? Conflict resolve the way I conflict resolve. This is how you're going to do it. And the problem is, is 
as we're doing all these things, we're turning people into projects. As if we are their fixer. They are a problem that we can solve. They are not a Rubik's Cube for you to, ta-da! And pride puts me at the center of the table. You think about that, right? When I bring pride to my table, I put me at the center of my table. I'm fighting for that spot at the center, saying I'm the most prestigious, I'm the most smart, I'm the most spiritual, I'm the healthiest. Listen to, put me at the center of it. Put me at the center of your problems. Put me at the center of your table. Put me at the center of your conversations. And I'll fix you. I'll solve your problems. And we see these attributes, comparing, competing, condescending, conforming. We see all these in the Pharisees. As you read through the Gospels, you see it repeatedly through them. They're constantly comparing themselves and competing with them and condescending and trying to conform people to their ways. They do all four of these things and they turn people into projects. And so Jesus is sitting at this table and he wants to address their prideful hearts. Because we aren't the answer to their problems, Jesus is. You didn't die on the cross for them. You can't make them right with God. You can't get them into heaven. You can't fix their marriage. You can't fix their finances. You can't fix their conflict resolution skills. Only Jesus can do those things. Only Jesus is the one that can be the solution that they truly need. And so Jesus is beginning to address this heart. And he shifts the conversation from pride to humility. In verse 10 and 11, he says, When you're invited, take the lowest place. So when the host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. I had to answer this question for myself. Why is Jesus bringing this up? He's sitting around the table. He's watching these things. He turns this into a teachable moment. And why doesn't he just say like, hey, stop it. Be nice to each other. Everyone just take a seat. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. That's what we tell our kids sometimes. Right? Just take a seat. But he doesn't just want to change behavior. He wants to change hearts. That's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't just want to change my behavior. He wants to change my heart. And he wants to change their hearts from prideful, arrogant, elitist, separate, you know, uh, condescending people and shift them into humble people. Why? Because God is humble. Because he wants the people of God to be humble. Because humility is what brings community together. Humility is what brings that table into a healthy place as we gather around it. People don't want to be around a prideful table. They don't want to be projects. They don't want to be told everything wrong with them. But they will gather at a table with humble people. You think about the gospel. The gospel is good news, right? Gospel translated as good news. The gospel is a message of good news that is characterized by humility. That's the message of Jesus. It is a humble message, right? In, in Philippians chapter 2, look at the way Paul describes what Jesus did. It just oozes with humility. Not pride, but humility. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's who we're trying to be. 
who being in the very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself, say it together, he made himself, I know you can do this, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The gospel is good news of humility. Jesus humbled himself to come to earth. Jesus humbled himself to take on humanity, to take on flesh. That is a, an act of humility. He humbled himself by sacrificing his life for ours. That is an act of humility. Sin and death and Satan were defeated by an act of humility, not an act of arrogance. Can we just dwell on that for just a second? Sin and death and Satan were conquered not by an act of power, of force, that was pridefully rooted. It wasn't a prideful power. It was an act of humility. Victory was found through an act of humility. That's the gospel message. That's who Jesus is and was. And so when we look at Jesus and we talk about Jesus, we experience the gospel of Jesus, we see that, I mean, even our own lives, we, we receive new life, we receive forgiveness through what? Humbling ourselves. I need Jesus' forgiveness. I accept the love of Christ. That is an act of humility for us to receive that kind of love. What did you do to deserve the love of Jesus? Does anyone have a good enough resume? No. No one is good enough to deserve heaven, which means that I humbly accept it, not boastfully and arrogantly and pridefully. Jesus reiterates the kingdom of God being founded and rooted in humility in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He also says this in Matthew 5.5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Not the elites, not the pride, not by power, not by tightening up your bootstraps and knocking down walls. It's not about that. It's not about fighting for yourself. The poor in spirit, the meek, the humble. It is this backwards approach in the kingdom of God. We descend into greatness, not ascend. We descend, we don't ascend. See, in our culture, it's all about climbing ladders, right? Networking and working hard and climb the ladder, climb the ladder, climb the ladder. And yet in the kingdom of God, it is almost this dissension. We, we drop into the greatness. We descend into it. We humble ourselves into it. And that's why in verse 11, he says it so simply, he who humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom of God is rooted in humility. The gospel it's just permeating with humility. So how is it that Christians digest the gospel for themselves and then ooze arrogance? How is that possible for us to do? How is it that we receive this message of humility, digest it, experience it for ourselves, and then gather around a table with people, turn them into our projects, and arrogantly think we can solve all their problems? Do you see the conundrum? Like, that's what Jesus has been pointing out to me all week, is just like, who do you think you are? 
How did you receive? Like, it doesn't make sense that A plus B equals jerk. A plus B equals comparison and condescension and conforming. Like, who do you think you are? How is it that Christians are sometimes the most abrasive and prideful and hurtful in our approach to these things? And that is what Jesus is noticing when he's sitting with the Pharisees. He's saying, guys, this isn't what I'm about. This isn't what God is all about. You're you're worshiping a God that is much more humble than you ever are. We've got to correct this. So he gets to the heart. How do we bring humility to the table? What does that look like? If we understand that pride means I'm, I'm going to try to fix everybody and solve all their problems and make them better in my image and all of this, what does it mean to bring humility to my table? When you sit around the lunchroom this week at work or you sit around your dining room table with your family or you sit in a dinner group this week or wherever you go, how do we bring humility to that table this week? How do we do that? I think... I think in my pride, I turn people into projects, so that means in humility, I just need to do what Jesus has done for me. When I gather around the table, can I do what Jesus has done for me and with me when I sat around his table? In Romans 15, 7, Paul writes to the Roman church and says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So, what does that mean? I'm going to love them the way Jesus has loved me. So, Jesus humbled himself for me. I'm going to humble myself for them. So, when you're sitting around my table, I'm not better than you. I humble myself to be around you. If Jesus has welcomed me to his table, I welcome you to my table. If he has accepted me, then I will accept you. If Jesus has loved me, then I'm going to love you. If he's forgiven me, I'm going to forgive you. If he's listened to me, I'm going to listen to you. Now, some of you would say, if he's fixed me, I'm going to fix you. No, that's not exactly where I'm going with that. But it's this idea of if if Jesus has answered our questions, I think it's okay to speak truth. If people have questions, and and, and God has answered my questions, but what I think is that you didn't get there by force. We got there with a God that is characterized as patient and kind and gentle. I mean, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. And right in this moment, I'm blanking on the rest of them, so that's really good. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, patience, you know, all of those things. Look it up. It's in there. (laughs) That's how I was changed. Was a God that met me in my lowest moments and said, we can do this. A God that listens to me when I cry. A God that meets me with patience in my repetition of sin. A God that loved me before I loved him. And I love what Paul says, for the glory of God. So this is where we truly bring humility to the table because it's not about you and I getting that warm, fuzzy feeling of, I am such a great person. I invited all these hurting people and I fixed them. 
look at me. What does he say? It's for the glory of God. And so who gets the credit? I mean, it's, it, it's almost so easy it feels wrong, right? It is for the credit and the glory and the attention of Jesus, right? So that's who's getting all this credit. And I think if we can come to the table around people and we can humble ourselves, we can listen to them and we can care for them and we can accept them and we can acknowledge them and we can empathize with them and we can be there for them and get nothing out of it. We're not pulling on invisible strings to get anything out of it. It is for the glory of Jesus. That's how we bring humility to the table. And when we bring humility to the table, we bring Jesus to the table. That's what I love. Is that when I bring humility to my table, Jesus is there because that's who Jesus is. He's humble. The Pharisees were bringing a terrible representation of God to their table. And I've probably, I know, I've done that at times. And so I feel challenged to bring a different representation, to bring a humble representation. Treat them not the way I want to be treated, but the way Jesus has treated me. That's been a paradigm shift for me recently, to treat people the way Jesus has treated me. Watch what happens when we begin to treat people like that. All of what we've been talking about, people that are different than you, people that look differently than you, act differently than you, believe differently than you, treat them the way Jesus would treat them, and watch what happens. Because this whole series is about building community, right? It's about growing together and building community around tables and life and sharing life together. And so think about it. This has to be something of a heart issue that God wants to work in all of us as we sit around the table with people is that we don't feel too good for the kids' table. Metaphorically speaking, we should all be sitting at the kids' table and God wants to do some heart work on us. Because if I would humble myself, that's going to build community. I'm going to really listen to people and hear what they're going through. I'm going to really care for people and not impose my agendas or my solutions. I'm going to say everybody that's sitting here is welcome to be here, and I'm not too good for you. That's the heart that is represented at a humbled table. That I'm here to care for you the way Jesus would care for you. Can we go do that this week? Can we do that in this season? Can I pray for us? Jesus, I, I just pray in this moment. We are gathered together online and in person, and I just pray that in this moment you use this as a teachable moment for all of us to humble our hearts. You took advantage and seized the moment with these Pharisees to want to teach their hearts, not just change their behaviors. God, and that humility that you're teaching us is catalytic. It's life-changing. It's community-building. God, it shows a gospel that people want and are enticed to and are drawn to. So God, I pray that you begin to humble our hearts. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the solutions. We don't know everything, God. Humble our hearts to engage with a world that desperately needs you.
Humble our hearts to engage with one another in the ups and downs of life. Help us to love this world the way you love it. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. If you'd like more information regarding Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.